In early 2008, Dieter Tejado was a high school senior dating a girl named Avery Acevedo until a heated argument led to their breakup. At a party on March 8, 2008, Dieter received a call from Avery's number, but a guy named Nick Schwartz was on the other end, slurring and making threats in a fake New York accent. Dismissing the tough guy persona and the threats, Dieter put him on speaker to share what he believed to be trivial and amusing with the other partygoers, but Dieter soon realized his mistake when he arrived at Avery's house and was met by Nick and three friends, all with baseball bats. Instead of having a few laughs at Nick in front of the partygoers who'd come along, Dieter was in very real danger. Unbeknownst to Dieter, Nick was on designer drugs that night and had a history of violence along with a troubling psychiatric diagnosis. Nick hit Dieter in the chest and eventually Dieter was able to wrestle away the bat and hit Nick as well before calling the fight over. At that point, Nick goaded the crowd that had slowly amassed into further violence while Dieter left the scene. According to the law, since Nick was the instigator, Dieter had the right to match force with him and a bat is arguably a deadly weapon. However, Dieter did not get even close to the force that he was legally allowed to use. Yet, Nick's family's access to power appears to have mattered much more than the law, with a corrupt prosecutor calling the shots. This is Wrongful Conviction. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode, well, it's an important episode. It's a different type of episode than 
maybe you're, you know, expecting, we will usually discuss cases with insanely long sentences, even death sentences, and terrible, terrible crimes. But what we have here is a really well, relatively short sentence when you look at it in the big picture via one of the more common ways in which wrongful convictions happen, and that's by a guilty plea for an alleged crime that doesn't even warrant a long prison sentence. I mean, it wasn't even a crime in the first place, but this also makes this sort of wrongful conviction a lot closer to home than some of our listeners might initially realize. And the man we're going to be interviewing today is one of the four guys who lived through this nightmare, but he's become a really close friend and Somebody I admire a lot and I'm proud to work with. And without further ado, I'll now introduce my friend, Dieter Tejada. Dieter, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Hey, Jason. Happy to be here, man. So I think it's interesting because you were like a relatively normal kid with a seemingly pretty normal, if you could call anything normal, family background. Is that fair to say? Yeah, my parents were both teachers. I, I grew up in Norwalk, Connecticut. I was like an average dorky kid had good grades, class clown. What happened to me, I never saw happening to somebody like me. For anyone that's listening to this, if you're a parent, if you happen to be middle class and you think that the justice system, that it only affects other people, you're going to want to stay tuned because your kids are not safe. Yeah. Whether you're a teenager yourself or you have teenagers or or you're just somebody who's concerned about fairness and justice, this story, it's important because of how things spiraled from what started off as a dispute amongst young men. And had you ever had any issues with police or any other type of thing like this before? No. I was very small most of my life. I had never gotten in fights before. You were not the instigator. Neither were your friends. But rather than me talk about it in the abstract, let's let's go back to the incident that was at the core of this winding road of what turned out to be official misconduct and ultimately, I'm going to say like madness in the system that was supposed to be there to protect and serve you and everybody in Norwalk. It was my senior year of high school and we were at a party at one of my friend's houses. It was a bunch of us from Norwalk, just a bunch of friends there. We were drinking. So there were crimes done that night. Let's be clear. I just wasn't convicted of any of them. I drank and drove that night, but I was convicted of something that I didn't do. Uh, anyways, what happened is I'm at the party. I get a call from the girl that I've been seeing. Things hadn't ended well. And I pick up the phone and this guy on the other line just immediately starts threatening me. He has like a New York accent, which one, like I was, I, let me be clear. I was less mature back then. So when he started threatening me, I laughed at him because he was from a town next over to me. Point is that it was a town where these kids are not known for being tough. But this kid starts threatening me and turned it on speakerphone. So a million witnesses right away, which is crazy how many witnesses there were involved. So if you think that like having a bunch of witnesses proving that you're innocent matters and that'll, that, that that necessarily will save you, not necessarily. Anyways, he threatened me, said he was like going to kill me, said he was going to come over there. And I was just like, nah, it's okay. I'll come over to the girl's house where he was at. He said that he would have bats when I got there. I just, again, I was like, dude, you're from Westport. Like, you're not going to do that. You're not a killer. So again, judge the book by the cover, or I didn't even know him. Also, for the kids out there, don't be stupid. If you do something stupid, things can spiral very quickly, and you could end up going to prison. And it's not fun. So I went over to that house, me, 
two girls hopped in the car and two of my friends. Long story short, the reason I went there is because I did not believe him. I did not believe anything was going to happen other than me making fun of him. And I was wrong. As I understand it, you arrive with your little crew and the kids who were there at the house, one of whom, who seems to have been the main instigator, we find out later, had a history of acting out in violent and antisocial ways. I definitely did not know the facts of, of his mental health history, his violent tendencies. I didn't know that then. And I also did not know that until only a couple of years ago, when I first found out the fact of what he had been diagnosed with, when I looked it up online, essentially what it said was that we don't like to call people psychopaths when they're kids. So we instead say that they have this type of antisocial disorder. You don't get diagnosed with this unless you have violent tendencies. One thing that I didn't know at that time, too, I could tell that he was like maybe a little bit drunk, maybe high. But the problem was, again, is that like it's what I didn't know about the differences between the two towns, too. Norwalk is more blue collar, middle class, you know, basically 33 percent white, black, uh, Hispanic was the breakdown of my high school. The town that he was from is all white, pretty much a couple Asians, maybe like one black person. And they're very wealthy. And the difference is that I smoked weed and drank. That's all we had really in Norwalk at that time. Things have changed, but that's all we had. Where he's from, they had been having one of these parties where they were all taking a bunch of different drugs. So I didn't realize that this kid was on the drugs that he was on at this time, nor was that evidence ever introduced during my case. It was only afterwards in the newly discovered evidence that I got many years later. That would have been useful information for you to know at the time, but of course that was withheld and we'll get to that. But So these kids come out of the house with baseball bats, right? That is right. Four guys come out with bats. One of them was like a younger kid, so not a big deal. But I'll tell you what, I was about 115 pounds, the tallest kid, which I didn't know who was who. Unfortunately, the tallest kid was the one that had called me. And uh, yeah, like he was a lot bigger than me and he wouldn't have necessarily needed the bat to kill me. But he had the bat and I was unarmed. At that point, two of my friends hopped out of the car. And meanwhile, we're, we're all Spanish. Like my other friends are much more Spanish looking. So I also thought this town, they're probably a little bit racist and they're going to be scared of us because we're, I don't know, ethnic and stuff. But I, I was wrong. He wasn't scared at all. I mean, he shouldn't be scared once he has the bats. He went right up to me and uh, basically started things off by putting the bat right up against my head. And in that moment, I realized that like my plan of going over there and just having a couple laughs, that that plan had gone out the window and things things escalated. So a quick fast forward is I get charged with assault in the first degree. So normally the defense in my case is simple. Was it assault or was it self-defense? So self-defense, one is that you can't be the initial aggressor. So the first question is who started it? If you're the initial aggressor, you can't do self-defense. If the other person's the initial aggressor, then there's only one more factor really to consider. What kind of force did they use? Now, there's two types of force. One is common, it's usual, it's not like intended to kill or maim or hurt. That's usually like fists, unless you're a boxer, maybe you might get the deadly force. But the second thing is deadly force. So deadly force is any time that you're, you're intending to really hurt somebody. So you could use a, a knife or a bat. A bat could be used to kill somebody, right? Especially like a bat put up against somebody's head. So technically, from the moment that he put the bat up against my head, 
while I was unarmed, I could have acted in self-defense. And the level of self-defense that I could use is the same as the level of force that I'm threatened with. Point is that you you tell me, audience, knowing this about self-defense, was this self-defense or was I guilty of assault? Well, tell us what happened, because this is the crux of the story right here. And it's, I mean, it's a traumatic experience, even if nothing had come from it other than the altercation itself. Yeah. So he puts the bat up against my head. I'm, I'm scared. I'll be honest. I had never been that scared. And the kid was clearly a little bit off, I realized at that point. He's sort of stumbling around. And realistically, he probably would have killed me if he hadn't been so screwed up. But he goes from the bat up against my head. I try and push it away. You know, I wanted to try and talk. He was not having that. Basically looked at me. Uh, I didn't know that he had been diagnosed with a mental disorder. I don't know. He's, he, he was scary looking. Nobody had looked at me like that before. So he takes the bat after that and just hits me in the stomach. Knocks the air out of me. I mean, as, as much as my case sucked, it could have been worse. I could have been dead. And I might have been dead if I hadn't had my friends there, if they hadn't decided to come along because they had heard about the bad thing. I guess they took it more seriously than I did. But after he hits me, he turned around and was laughing to his friends and whatever. And one of my buddies ran over and punched him in the head, knocked him down. He starts trying to get up. So I run over, punch him, grab the bat from him after he hits me. He like swings it at me like loosely on the ground. That, that one did not hurt. I'll tell you that much. But it did piss me off. I go down, wrestle with him for the bat again. I'm pretty strong now. I was not strong then. He was about double my size. And if he hadn't been high on drugs, I don't think I would have won. In that time, he was. And so I wrestled the bat away from him. He rolled over. I hit him in the legs twice and then hit him in the back once. One thing I learned that night was that I had never hit somebody with a bat before. And I don't have it in me to hit somebody with a bat full force. So I didn't hurt him. Maybe if I'd hurt him, more things would have gone differently. But I didn't hurt him that badly. And what's interesting is one of the stories that evolved afterwards was that I hit him in the head with a bat and hurt him really bad. I never did. <laughs> didn't hit him in the head with a bat at all. And it's ironic because what actually did happen is he did put his hands over his head. And I remember I, I like, like yelled down at him. I was like, I'm not going to hit you in the head, you idiot. And then that was right before I hit him in the legs. So long story short, after I hit him with the bat a couple of times, which again, I know it sounds pretty bad hitting somebody with a bat. Not assault. Not <laughs> Not under the circumstances of when that bat was wielded against you. And trust me, he was fine. He got back up. He was spry at that point. Gets back up. And now he went to go pick up the bat. Uh, and he started trying to get in a second fight with me. And I was just like, nah. Nah, put the bat down, though. Like, why are you getting on the bat again? Basically, we're all sprawled out on, on the lawn at that point. Long story short, after he got back up and threatened me, I just kept on turning down the fight. The girl comes out at that point. Things get uh, pandemonium, but that was the end of my involvement. But what did end up happening is he did end up getting into something with a couple other kids. So three other kids show up a little while after after we had that first scuffle. They came from the party that I was at. I didn't call them. I didn't. I didn't have anything to do with them showing up there, except that everybody at the party I've been at like heard it on speakerphone. But um, he gets into a fight with them. And in this second fight, again, he basically starts it, chest bumps one of the kids. He gets punched in the face, again, drops. And this time he got kicked while he was on the ground. But uh, I wasn't involved in any of that. And shortly after that, I mean, he did get up and we just left. 
went back to Norwalk and that was that. I remember thinking that night, okay, that was my first fight. You know, I'd heard about other people getting in fights, that was my first fight. I thought it was just gonna be a crazy night that, you know, we'd talk about for a week and whatever, but it, it ended up being the start of like the most defining thing that happened in my life. This episode is underwritten by global law firm Greenberg Traurig. Through its pro bono program, Greenberg Traurig leverages its more than 2,400 lawyers across 42 offices to serve the greater good of our communities and provide equal access to justice for all. In the field of criminal justice, Greenberg Traurig attorneys have exonerated and freed a man in Philadelphia, represent numerous individuals previously sentenced to life for crimes committed as juveniles in resentencing hearings, and received the American Bar Association's 2021 Exceptional Service Award for Death Penalty Representation for their work on five death penalty cases. GT is reimagining what big law can be because a more just world only happens by design. If you think that your kid Oh, all he has to do is go in and tell the truth. Well, let me tell you, this is facts. Anything you say can and will, it will be used against you. It will not be used in your favor. So don't believe that it's a good idea to just bring your kid in, your kid's an honest kid, and you can just have them say what happened and that's gonna be helpful, it won't. Going into this, I thought that the system worked a certain way. My parents did too. We thought assault versus self-defense. So we thought that mattered, but guess what? All that stuff went out the window right away. Facts, evidence, that was not part of the case. Basically, they decided from the beginning who they were gonna go after and what the facts were gonna be. That, that I was guilty of assault. And the first degree mainly happened a little bit later and they had a trouble with it because to have a first degree charge, you need to actually show evidence of injury. And they were not willing to turn over the medical report because I think the way that the case actually first got to the police was Nick may have been hurt, but he also was clearly on drugs that night, pretty heavy drugs. When he got there, they needed to give him his antipsychotics, basically calm him down. So you've got a group of rich kids high on drugs and something's wrong with their friend Nick, who's also on various drugs and got into a fight. They called Westport PD at 1.47 a.m. and requested an ambulance. Now, Nick was allegedly in a semi-conscious state. And so one of the main goals of this group of drugged out rich kids at this point had to be to hide the fact that they were, in fact, all high on drugs, which certainly affected their interactions with the police. Now, we don't know exactly what happened after you left the scene that night, Dieter. But what we do know is that Schwartz was well enough to try to continue to fight you, followed by the crowd that had gathered. But as you just mentioned, the first degree assault charge against you was... I mean, as flimsy as it could be, not even counting the self-defense aspect of this, but because they never turned over the medical records and still have it, right? So it really calls into question the validity of any claims of injury. I mean, you know, I've read about these alleged injuries in the news clippings because the prosecutor said it, but I mean, it's hard to separate what's true. He was alleged to have been in the ICU for a week followed by physical and cognitive rehabilitation. What we do know is that you did not, could not have caused that level of injury to Schwartz, even though in self-defense, in theory, you, you were legally allowed to have done so with no legal issues. So this is a double whammy. This is like, 
what? But now back to the people who had something to hide. We're talking again about the drugged out rich kids. What happens between them and the police? The way that the, the detective work happened is they first talked to him and his friends. Friends lied really badly. They said that we were a bunch of Mexicans. They met at the library, told this like ludicrous story. So the detective had them come back in and actually she had to make them change their story to another lie, not as consistent as their first one. And their next one was all like a little bit scattered. The point is that she tried to fit the pieces in together after my interview. In fact, the detective did some of the most like leading interviews that I've ever seen. I've, you know, I went to law school. I've seen a bunch of cases and it's up there. And some of the interviews, including my own, were quote lost after they were recorded because unfortunately my, my interview wasn't that great for the prosecution. It sounded pretty credible. I didn't buckle under any of the questioning. Uh, just told the truth. And after the investigation, we went to go hire my attorney. And, and this was the best piece of advice he gave us from the beginning was this. We go in there. Are we getting ready to tell him my story, the facts, the evidence? But he astutely surmised that none of that mattered. Only thing that mattered was the prosecutor. Who do you know? That was the first thing that my parents and I were asked by my attorney. Who do you know? Because that's how this guy operates. By this guy, he was talking about the prosecutor in my case. That's exactly the way this shouldn't work. And that's why anyone who cares about fairness and equity should care about fixing our system. Because this is unfortunately not unique, as you said, Dieter. This case is you know, unique in certain ways, but it's so typical in so many others, including that particular aspect. So ultimately, like a lot of other people, you were faced with a Sophie's choice, right? You didn't know anybody. The fact is your family didn't have any particular contacts high up in the hierarchy in the town. And so you were now really, especially because of the fact that they were willing to operate outside of the law, right? And, and, and break and bend the rules, you know, in service of, I don't know who, what, uh, mm. I guess the family that was on the other side of this equation. So, Dieter, I got to turn the question around. So who did they know? The difference was my parents were teachers. They didn't know anyone. The closest we got was I had shadowed for the mayor of Norwalk once. Uh, not good enough. On the other hand, the kid who I was accused of assaulting, his parents were both attorneys. They won that battle and, and the rest of the case just led from there. The, the prosecutor in my case was a who do you know type of prosecutor, which there's a, a number of them out there. And he was very ambitious. So the, the moment that he figured out who knew somebody more important, who knew somebody that could actually advance his career or get him ahead or help him in some way, that's when, when the case was decided. It wasn't personal. He didn't, he didn't intentionally do something to hurt me. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't want to get people wrongfully convicted. He will wrongfully convict you if it helps him. He will also do justice if it helps him. That's how this guy operated. Three of my friends, we were just stepping stones on this man's journey to the top. Uh, and he actually made it there. A couple of weeks ago, finally came crashing down because the typical things that he did, the thing that I, I learned about him 12 years ago, he finally got caught doing it. But this time he got caught doing it by the FBI and the, the governor got pretty upset and they, they wanted him out. So he actually resigned in disgrace. He had made it all the way up to the chief state's attorney's office along the backs of who knows how many other people he did this to. But I'll just tell you this, that we were on the wrong end of that who do you know question back then. And that's where this thing goes so horribly wrong, although it is nice to see that it's come full circle and that, you know, at least justice delayed 
seems like it won't be justice denied here, um, although you're still dealing with this. So let's get to this Sophie's Choice that I'm talking about, right? So here you are. They're not disclosing the exculpatory evidence to you. There's a lot of other stuff going on behind the scenes that you had no way of counteracting or fighting back against. First of all, because you didn't know about it, a lot of it, and the rest of it was you didn't know anybody you know who could pull the strings for you. So you were just a thing to be sort of processed for the advantage of other people who didn't have good intentions. And as a result, you end up with this Sophie's Choice. So tell us about that because they, you know, you're looking at a 10-year sentence on this first-degree assault charge. And then they come and they offer you a plea deal, right? And I can't imagine having to decide, am I going to take a plea for something I didn't do, which is, I would say in your case, in too many cases, the logical and rational choice, or am I going to fight this and risk a 10-year sentence, which would be, at that point, you know, a large percentage of the time you've even been on the planet. Yeah. So I think that's another one of the key facts in my case is sort of, I haven't seen many stories about wrongful convictions where it was a plea deal, but I'll tell you this much. It's probably the number one way. Why? Because 95% of cases are determined by a plea deal. People think that prosecutors, if they come to you with like, oh, the prosecutor has a 95% conviction rate, he's really good. No, he isn't. All he is is a good like car salesman who has everything in his hand. Essentially, I knew that I was innocent. But I also knew math, and so did the prosecutor, and he did good math. I was 95% sure that if I went to trial, I would win out. I was 100% sure I wouldn't get an assault one charge. I wasn't so sure about the assault three charge, but that was only because they had been switching up the facts so much. I mean, in retrospect, it's so clear. It's so clear. The case is so easy. But, you know, my parents and I, we were new to this system. We had never seen it before. So... Long story short, they dragged this case out. All this stuff keeps going on. I had gotten into college in the meantime. I was, it was terrifying. And I remember on eventually after a number of continuances, I went in one day. I didn't know I was going to go to prison that day, but I go in and finally the prosecutor comes back with the ultimate deal. It's a take it or leave it. They haggled. Originally, it was going to be a year. And then he was like, make the quote victims. You need to make them happy. If you make them happy, Maybe I'll give you a better deal. And my parents, against mine, this is an interesting part of the case, too, is you think, because I know what people think, that people get wrongfully convicted only if they're broke. We weren't broke. My parents were middle class. And if you have money, you won't get wrongfully convicted. Yeah, we had money. They gave it all to these people for a deal, for a deal that, one, wasn't honored. So I was supposed to get a better deal because my parents gave money. But we didn't get a better deal. Didn't affect the case at all. Um, but long story short, money was part of the deal and I accepted nine months because I knew that the math said that's the deal to take. It was one of the hardest decisions I ever made, but it was the right decision based on the facts back then. All of my co-defendants, we all took the same deal based on the facts we had. Now, the facts we had were not the full facts. That was the issue. But at that time, yeah. It took nine months over over 10 years. And trust me, I know everyone thinks they wouldn't do it. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. And you would hate it. And you would cry as your kid goes in. And he will be hurt. And he might not make it out. I'm well aware that I, I was lucky. And I've been lucky since then.
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
all four of you were convicted. All four of you were minors. All of you served your full sentences of prison and parole.、Uh, Caesar Cordero,、um, your friend who I've gotten to know, was deported to El Salvador as a result of the conviction, which was a country he had no knowledge of. He was a baby when he was brought here from there. So even more dire consequences for him. So prison was a, as it turns out, a transformative experience for you in some ways that are positive. Not because of prison, and not because you belonged there, because you didn't. But it informs your life's work. So, tell us about prison and how it affected you and made you want to become this sort of justice warrior that you've become. Yeah, so prison was a turning point,、um, especially after sentencing. You know, I thought I was at the lowest point ever.、Uh, I went into sentencing, thought I was going to talk about everything that had happened that was so wrong, but instead, I, I didn't. Which was the hardest thing I had ever done, but I knew that I'd get hit with a harder sentence. I remember I didn't cry much while I was inside, but I think twice, which was my first letter from my parents.、Uh, but I cried after sentencing alone in a cell and thought my life was over. Judge said that my life was over, but he was wrong. My life now that I'm living,、uh, which is a better life than I ever had, it started while I was inside. For me, it was one the wake up call was that this is how the system works. This is what it is. What I saw was a bunch of people that didn't deserve to be in there—a prison system and a court system that was nothing like what the general public, what people like the average person, people like、uh, you and me thought it was. And I knew that even the people that were running it, the lawyers, the judges—one of the big epiphanies I had was like, do they even know what it's like in here? And I knew that they didn't. So I knew that one of the big problems was that. The people that are running the system, that are changing the laws, that are actually executing them—that even they, they don't really know. So, how in God's name would a system that doesn't include people that have been through it, if they're not included in the process of making the system better, how will it ever be solved? So, prison was not a very long sentence for me, but it was a massive period of change. I committed to doing something about it. You get out of prison in October 2009, and you said in your law admissions letter, "quote I doubt I will ever experience the same level of euphoria as I did on that day." And of course, you went to law school and excelled. But I want to talk about the evidence of of your wrongful conviction that emerged too late to help you, but which we now know. What were the key pieces of evidence that you were able to uncover that, had you known about, would have been Well, never would have, you never would have made the decision to take a plea, and you would have gone to trial, and you would have won. I think that's almost a given. So, talk about that. So, I took a plea deal because I had less than half the evidence. So, my case originally was in two thousand eight oh nine conviction. The new evidence didn't come about until twenty twenty. So, after law school, I had to take the bar, and I went back to Connecticut to take it. And you know you take the exam, and then there's this thing called the character and fitness process. So in the process of that, they asked me to go get all the evidence in my case. So the police report is one of the key pieces of evidence in any case. It's usually just very good for the prosecutor because it's written by the police detective, especially if the detective happens to do a bad investigation. But in my case, that police report, I was missing more than half of it. Back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when I was trying to make my decision, I had a twenty-one page document. 
many years later, many years after the case, I go back to get the police report from the Westport Police Department. And this time, what I got was the document that was 44 pages, a document that we had never seen before. In those 23 pages, there was a lot of evidence. I know why we never got it before, because it was all bad for the state's case. We got evidence of the, not the full medical report, still don't have that doing a Freedom of Information Act right now to get it. But we got evidence that showed that one, the kid was on a number of drugs, drugs that actually, especially for somebody with his mental disorder, can lead to, quote, violence. Additionally, a diagnosis of a conduct disorder, which is only given to young people very rarely, and, and it's only in the case when they've exhibited violent tendencies. That coupled with some of the witness statements that either contradict completely the state's case or cast doubt on the credibility of their key witnesses, all of that evidence we never had before. One other key piece of evidence is actually interesting. So at, at my sentencing, there was a big show put on. They made a big deal, and as they should, in an assault one case. In an assault one case, you need to have an injury. So in 2008, 2009, what we were, were led to believe prosecutor said during my sentencing was that this kid, uh, you know, he had been really hurt. He had a fractured skull. He was in the hospital. He had permanent injuries. He had cognitive and, and speech problems, uh, trouble walking. The problem was that wasn't true. And a pretty strong evidence that uh, that he was actually totally okay. In fact, I didn't see this until many years later, but social media did exist in 2009. And he was on it. And he has a post that I found that was uh, from that exact time when he's allegedly in a hospital bed fighting for his life and, and, and never recovering. The photo is of him and his family in Africa on a mountaintop. And the, the line was, summer of 09, best time of my life. So it's unclear to me yet whether or not he was lying to the prosecutor fully. But it's pretty clear that the prosecutor was lying or that what he said was lies. The kid was fine. And we took the plea deal based on the evidence back then, which included an alleged terrible injury. And best time of your life is not recovering from a terrible injury. Uh, Africa sounds nice. After uncovering that, I remember I brought it to, to my co-defendants right away and just was like, hey, guys, have you, had you ever seen this? None of us have. And all of us to the T, yeah, of course I never would have taken the plea deal had I, had I seen this. Why would I? No jury in the world is going to convict us with this. So in addition, you know, after that, I, I started doing like a little investigation my, myself and started interviewing witnesses again. And some people lied back then. It wasn't personal. People were just looking out for themselves. Or, you know, in the case of the kid who assaulted me, his friends were they literally said why they lied. We were afraid of him getting in trouble. That's what they told the police detective after she made them redo their statement. But since then, they've recanted. That, in addition to the police report, which we always should have had, is basically the basis of wrongful conviction. And on top of all that, the most recent thing is what happened with the prosecutor now. His corruption charge, which really his credibility is, is shot. And the argument in terms of what he did to us and what he did intentionally, it's not that hard to make now that he's been shown to be somebody who, who's still doing this stuff. And of course, the guy you're referring to is Richard Colangelo, who was the prosecutor in your case and who later served as chief state's attorney 
until March 31st, 2022. So get this. While the FBI was investigating the state's second highest budget official, they subpoenaed all of his communications. And on the back of that, an independent investigation began into his relationship with Colangelo, who had hired this budget official's daughter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. While lobbying to secure raises for himself and others. Again, it's just a pattern of who can benefit me. Right? But in this case, he was actually caught and forced to resign. So at the end of the day, your case is a laundry list of misconduct and misdeeds by people in official capacities who knew better and just didn't care. There are so many stories like this. There's a whole hashtag, hashtag guilty plea problem for people to look up, hashtag guilty plea problem. And many of them have much longer sentences, even mm -hmm. for much more serious crimes. But people take the plea because, you know, when they're represented by an attorney, maybe they haven't even met, who might not even know their name, who's juggling 100 or 200 cases, having trouble paying their bills, maybe having their own personal problems. We see it time and again, and you're sitting there and you know the government has endless resources you know, to take you to trial and to basically make you look like you did the crime that you know you didn't do. The rational choice in too many of these cases is to take the plea. And there goes the guilty plea problem of which you are a symbol. Anyway, you've transcended this horrible experience. Uh, you've come out uh, come out swinging is a bad way to say it based on the initial incident. But the fact is you are on the way to changing things in, I think, a way that's so profound that, you know, it's going to put you in a rarefied air among the people that I really look up to in, in the world of criminal justice reform. You're, you're well on your way. So let's talk about the work you're doing now. I mean, you're the founder of the National Justice Impact Bar Association, which is, of course, a, a bar association for formerly incarcerated lawyers, an idea whose time has certainly come. You know, a surprising, I think to a lot of people, a surprising number of formerly incarcerated people who have, you know, gone on to become lawyers and excel, of course, Marty Tanklip and so many others. You know, it's amazing. And there's a whole nother category of people who just did brilliant legal work on their own behalf, on behalf of others behind bars. Like, I can't, I can't not mention Sean Hopwood, right? You know, who's won U.S. Supreme Court cases and taught himself the law in prison. And just, you know, there's so much potential for these people to make a difference with their lived experiences as you have. So quickly, tell us about the National Justice Impact Bar Association. And then I want to talk about the other project that we're working on together. Yeah. So Justice Impact Bar is the first legal bar association for impacted people. Essentially, it's it's just following my path, trying to like expand the Dieter plan to the masses. You know, inside, I decided that I needed to go to law school because I saw that the law is where the power was. During my, my journey, I realized that there were a lot of barriers, a lot of barriers that were specifically there because of my experience, which was crazy to me because, you know, I played the game to go to law school. I got 4.0, I got a 175, a 99.5 percentile on the LSAT. And when I applied to law school, I should have gotten in everywhere. And now I would have luckily, partially because we've expanded things for people. But back then I was denied from a number of schools. I ended up going to Vanderbilt, which I'm very happy about that. It was, it was great. But that barrier at the law school level 
and the barrier that also exists afterwards, which is the character and fitness process for licensing. That barrier is inspired initially for me to set up this bar association because I've talked to other people, Marty Tancliffe, Tara Simmons, Sean Hopwood, Dwayne Betts, all these lawyers. When I was going to law school, I didn't know that it was possible. I was told it was impossible. And I didn't know that there were other people like me, but there are. That was one of the, the, the key things that like I get out of law school and I find out about all these other lawyers and I'm like, holy, and they, they're, they're superheroes. I mean, they're, 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 we're, they're, we're changing the system. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be around in this time period. And, and, and that's what the bar works for is to advance us, to get more people like Sean Hopwood. There are more Sean Hopwoods out there. I just talked to another guy who's formerly incarcerated I've been working with him for like two years. Now he just got into Yale law school. That's the best law school in the country, formerly incarcerated. Awesome. He's going to, he's going to be a beast. It's awesome. It's an exoneree. I'll tell you this. I won't name him yet, but I know who the first justice impact of the Supreme Court justice is going to be. You can circle back with me in, in a couple of years, but we'll see. So these people are the people that are going to change the system. And of course, the Justice Impact Alliance, as you know, the very first time you told me about this, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's something that I think has the potential to help countless future Dieter Tejadas and others who are in situations that they have uh, seemingly no way out of. So what is the Justice Impact Alliance and what do you view as its potential and, and the impact it's going to make? So that's the second thing. It's all about access, empowerment and inclusion. And so the bar, as it works to get impacted people involved in and through the, the field of law, the Justice Impact Network is a new digital platform that came about again because of my experience. In my case, part of the reason I was wrongfully convicted was my parents and I, we weren't lawyers. We did not know, we weren't stupid, but we didn't know where to go to get the help or to get the self-help resources that we could have used or to connect with people that could have helped us in the situation. And that's a problem that's all too common. There are a number of resources out there. There are a lot of service providers out there. But up until this point, it's completely unnavigable. And that's what the Spec Network works to fix. Essentially, it's like any other digital platform that has revolutionized other industries. Uber has revolutionized how you get a ride. Spec Network is going to revolutionize how people get justice. And it's not going to do it any in any complicated way. It's literally very simple. If we connect people with service providers that fit their specific need. We connect people with resources that fit their specific need. We have a very cool program that brings in students and other allies and just connects the space to make this happen. But the, the key thing is, and it's the key thing with everything that I've done so far, is that we do it through the people. Justice Impact people are included from the beginning. We're working with developers that have done other justice tech projects, but we're the first digital platform where we, from the beginning, it's been over a year of development, uh, from the beginning, we were working with impacted people, doing user testing with impacted people. And we have our pilot right now in New York and Connecticut, but we're going to be expanding nationally over time. And that's really exciting. It's awesome. I mean, for me, it's just such an amazing idea because of the fact that it's, it's simplifying what is a Byzantine and intimidating process for a lot of people. This information is not readily available for people who need it in their time of great crisis and to their family members. So please go to the link in our bio right now. 
click on the justiceimpactalliance.org to find out more about this incredible work and and maybe to help somebody that that you know that needs the help. And Dieter, you know, amazing work, amazing story. Thank you again for being here on Wrongful Conviction and sharing it. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for everything you do, man. You're one of the, one of the real ones out there. I'll just throw in that also, um, in my case, there's one other thing you could do. My co-defendant, Cesar Cordero, uh, he had it the worst out of all of us. He was legally here, but because of the wrongful conviction, he had lost his status. He ended up getting deported. He got sent back to El Salvador. He left there as a baby, got sent back there only because of the wrongful conviction. Uh, ultimately, my goal is to, to work and to get him to be able to come back over here. Uh, that's going to be a long fight, but right below the Justin Back Alliance one is going to be the link to his GoFundMe because he needs support. We will link to GoFundMe for Caesar as well in the bio, um, and hopefully people will join me and us in helping him. And now, of course, we turn to the closing of our show, which is aptly titled Closing Arguments. This is the part where I kick back in my chair with my headphones on, turn my microphone off, and just leave yours on for any last words you want to share with our audience. To the general public, if you take anything from my story, take this, that what happened to me, it definitely can happen to you. It can happen to you. If you have a, your honor roll kid, your kid that you love a lot, that you can't ever imagine going to prison, you think that like you have the money or that you have like some type of security, you don't. You don't necessarily. Things can spiral very quickly. And depending on the, the characters involved, justice might not be done. They could go to prison. Another message I have is, is this. It's to all the impacted people, uh, both in and out of prison. Anybody that's listening to this, is uh, one, if you want to be a lawyer, do it. Talk to me. Reach out. Check out the link. That's what we're working to do. We're trying to work to get you in there. I didn't know that I could do it, but I did. I'm telling you right now, you definitely can. So don't think about it. Do it. And hang in there. The one thing I found is that eventually, eventually you win. Eventually. As long as you stay in it. Just stay in the fight. And to everybody else, if you want to make a better system, I've, I've seen it because I work with hundreds of students. Hundreds of students. The future is bright. The future is super bright. And that's because there's a lot of people coming up that want to do the right thing. And here's the point. You can't. You can get involved, work with us, work with impacted people. Right now we're in the middle of a movement, a movement for justice. The point is that there's impacted people and their students are the two main groups that have been involved. But quite frankly, also, if you're a lawyer or somebody else that's working in the system, wake back up, wake back up to the fact that like, you don't have to give up on things and be totally burnt out. Things are changing right now. And we, we look forward to anybody that wants to be part of this change come make it happen. And uh, quite frankly, to anybody that doesn't want this change, too bad. Whether you like it or not, luckily, I've gotten to the point where some of the, the things that I've built, I don't build things that are like Dieter dependent. The Bar Association is not Dieter dependent. Just the fact Alliance isn't Dieter dependent. These are, these are machines that are going to be working for and through my people regardless of and they're gonna to work to fix the system. They are systems that attach to the system to make the system better. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. 
I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.